cross, right, and his interceding for us. And when we, last week we talked about when we say prayers, we should ultimately it should be that we desire that they would be God's will for God's glory. Even though we have things in our heart, we want to say that we hopefully that it's God's will and for his glory. But we end our prayers with one word. What do we say? Amen. Right? Do we know what amen means? Let it be that. Let it be so. Very good. Yeah. So the word means truly or truth. Right? Let it be so. And so when we when we sing a song and we say amen at the end of it, what we're saying is we believe it. We trust it. It's true, and we want to we want to follow what it said. And that, and we just saying praising our Savior all the day long. And we say amen because that's what we want to do. We right. And when we pray, the same thing. It's like we believe this to be true. We desire it to be God's will and for His glory. And so we say amen in agreement to what. We're praying, right? So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this awesome privilege to come to you in prayer. Lord, may we never take it for granted that we can come and speak to a holy God. We just pray, Lord, that we would always consider our prayers. Even though we have things in our hearts and things that we desire, we pray, Lord, that our prayers would always be, number one, your will and for your glory. And when we say amen at the end of our prayers, Lord, that it would be we, uh, uh, an acknowledgement, and agreement of what we have just prayed for your glory. And we pray that and we ask that. We just thank you, Lord, for this time together, time in prayer, time of worship, time of drawing closer to you, time of loving you more and loving others more. We thank you for this awesome privilege you give us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children say amen. amen. Good job. Thanks, guys. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite books of all time is uh, Pilgrim's Progress. As a Christian, if you've not read it or listened to it, you are missing out, and I encourage you. <clears throat> we may even have a copy or two back on the bookshelf. The main character, whose name is Christian, is living in the city of destruction, finds this book, the Bible, and that upon reading it, it puts this giant burden upon his back. And the burden represents the weight of his sin that he's now aware of. In desperation, seeking a way to remove this burden and to flee from the city of destruction, he meets a man named Evangelist who directs him on the right path, and the path towards Jesus Christ. The story then is Christian's journey to the cross to get this burden removed, and then his journey ever since that time to reach the celestial city. During this time, this journey he encounters many characters who either help him or hinder him with this burden and with this journey. So I do encourage you to, to read the book. You will be blessed by it. 
blessed in your soul and blessed in your journey to the celestial city or to get that burden removed. It reminds us of the weight of the burden of our own sin and the joy that is found when that burden is removed by Jesus. But as sure as the promise is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you can also be assured that Satan hates that fact and that promise. If he cannot have your soul eternally, you can bet he does not want you to rejoice in that fact. He loves doubt. He loves weakness. He loves discouragement. And he will do everything that he can to convince you and distract you from the fact that you are now free in Christ Jesus. That's where, in verse 33, these charges come in, these accusations that you aren't really free of this burden. We all sin. And we make mistakes. And unfortunately, we will put our joy in sinful or in worldly treasures. We are all prone to wonder. But God in his graciousness and his faithfulness brings us back through the power of his Holy Spirit. And through faithfulness to his word, to his promises that he made to us. And this is one of those great promises in Romans 8, 33. God uses it for us to cling to when we feel like that burden still remains, when the weight of our sin or the weight of the world or the weight of the pressures of life or the circumstances in life start to burden us. God gives us a passage like this to remind us that we are his. And no matter what Satan or no matter what the world or even ourselves try to charge us or accuse us with, we are God's. And those charges will not stick. We are unchargeable. So let's look a little deeper into Romans 8.33 to be encouraged in our assurance that we just sang about that we are, in fact, unchargeable. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is one of Paul's rhetorical questions in response to verse 31. What shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who could be against us? God did not spare his own son. Shall he not give us all things? Not only that, because God is the one who justifies us or declares us to be right or in right standing in his eyes because it's God who's the one who does that. Who then could bring any charges against us? The answer that Paul is implying is no one. No one can. They will try, but no one can charge us. 
So let's make sure we understand it all correctly as we dig a little deeper into all that Paul is saying here. Paul is not talking about earthly life charges, but end time charges, judgment day charges. Okay, you go out and you commit a crime, you can trust, hopefully, that charges will be brought against you, and rightfully so. But he's talking about end times. He's talking about judgment day. He's talking about when you stand before God, and the deeds and the words and the works of your life are on display. Who's going to bring charges against you then? Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 16, verses 26, 27, what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Each person according to what he has done. <clears throat> Even the best of us should read that and be a little concerned. This is how it's relayed to us in Revelation. You can read along. It's almost near the end of your Bibles here in Revelation verse 20, or chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. <clears throat> John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Okay, you see what's going on here? There's some books. Everything that we're do we've done is being read before the throne, before this judgment. And the sea gave up and the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So on that day, when the books are opened, the books of everything that you've done, everything that you've said, every good word, every careless word, good deed, sinful deed. When Jesus looks then into his book of life, we have better hope that our name is written in that book of life. So how do we know whose name is written in that book of life? It's right here in this verse. It is the elect. It is God's chosen. It is his people, those whom God chose from before the foundation of the world. And how do we know it's from before the foundation of the world? The Bible says it all over the place. Revelation 13, verses 5 to 8. 
And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This book of life, Jesus opens on Judgment Day, is not someone whose good deeds on earth earn their names to be written because of what they've done. They are the elect from before the foundation of the world, the ones who God chose. That's what Paul's saying. This is what Revelation is saying. Who shall bring any charge against them, against God's elect, against the ones whose names are written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world? We're all going to be judged. We're all sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God. So then how do those sinners get right with God is the, is, is the big issue. Is God just letting in a bunch of sinners? It doesn't matter what you did in, in these books. How's that going to work? God justifies them. He puts them in right standing. How does he do this? We get the, the answer that it's not us. It is God who justifies. So the sinners who are standing for God, his elect written in the book of life, they get right by God, with God by God, not by their own doing. They cannot do it by works. They're being judged by those works. There has to be another way. And this is the way. Paul gives it to us in Galatians. It's not by the things you do. It's not by the religious ceremonies that we do. It's not by the helping all the old ladies across the street or doing the nice things. That's not going to get us right with God. When, if we're on court, if we're on trial for doing something wrong, and we're guilty, and everybody knows it, and in our defense we say, well, I brought some groceries to my neighbor. Everybody's been a great job. What about all the things that you've done? And that's the same way. So how do we get, how, can we be justified by our works? And Paul says it clearly in Galatians. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. In order to be justified, to be put in right standing by faith. In Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is how we do it. God does it. He gives us the gift of faith. He gives us the gift of new birth. We're born again. And what comes when we're born again is we see that we're sinners, and we see that Jesus has made a way for sinners to be forgiven by his death on the cross, and God gives us the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. And this is how we are justified, by grace, through faith, right? By grace, by God's free gift, not earning it, not doing anything, no religious ceremony. Jesus came 
He lived the sinless life we were created to live, glorifying God every single second of his life. He was charged, right? He was put on trial. His father delivered him up, as we talked about last week. So he, he was punished for our evil works and our evil words. And when judgment day comes then, and our works, good and bad, are red, and we are found guilty of sin, which we all are, he'll look at his book of life. He'll see our names were written in there with his blood and declare before the Father and everyone else, this one's mine. This one's mine. I already paid for those works that were just read. I've already taken that punishment. And, and that punishment that I took was so great that it covered all those sins that were just read. <clears throat> now, if you get there to that day before you have believed in him, before you have realized that that is the truth and that is what has happened, depending on yourself, if your plan is to stand before God, and when he asks, why should you come in here, and you say, well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, depending on the things that you've done, your works, it's going to be a bad day. I believed that. For my, for my whole life, growing up, I was baptized as a baby. I went through the religious ceremonies. I depended on those feeling if I showed up to church each week and I took communion each week and I said my confessions each week that those were the things. If I did those things, it would absolve me so that when I stand before God, I would be okay. And then what did I do? Having those things intact, I went and lived however I wanted to live not caring anything about what this word said. I went and lived how the rest of the world lived. I went and lived for myself, doing the things that I wanted to do because I was good to go. I have my heaven ticket punched, and the things I need to say sorry for, I'll say sorry before I die. That was the foolishness in which I lived until God opened my eyes through his word and reading it says, no, that's not at all how it happens. You're a fool, James, if you believe that. So if that is you, you must put your faith in him now, in his works now. Before it is too late, you must believe now. You must hope now. You must trust now. You must surrender your life now. This is what faith in him is. Paul says in Romans 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means I surrender my whole life to you. Lord, that's a pretty big word. I surrender my whole life to, to not be lived how I want to live it or how the rest of the world says I should live it, but how you say I should live. I'm going to surrender now. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It's belief. It's faith. And he's the one who does it. He's the one who justifies. We condemn. We're the one condemning ourselves, right? John says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know this verse. We love it. But Jesus continues, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We've talked, I've talked to many of you, I know what you've said, but here's where you need to measure what do I believe in your heart. And this is where I'm begging you and I'm pleading with you. What do I believe? Do I believe? Is my hope when I stand before God on that day of judgment and things that I've done or completely in Jesus Christ? That's it. That's it. That is the beginning and the end of salvation right there. What are you depending on? What are you hoping in? And you have to it has to come from the heart. You heard it. It has to be something you believe. It can't be something your kids, it can't be something your parents believe. It can't be something your spouse believes. It has to be real and true for you. So if you haven't reconciled that with God today, that is the first and foremost thing that you must do. So then, we ask again, armed with the gospel, and our names being written in the book of life, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is God who declares us to be right. And it wasn't because of anything I did. He did it because of his great pleasure. He, grace, right, is a free gift. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. He did it. So if he's going to do it, if he's going to make that choice of declaring me righteous, who's going to come up and say, no, no, no. You got to do this. Or you believe this, and this is wrong. No, it's God. So the answer, again, of course, is no one will bring any charge. If we're good to go that day because of Jesus, we're good to go. So what does that mean for us practically? Right, we got some big theological, some big end times stuff talking about it. But as you go about your life, and we sang that song, that beautiful song, Blessed Assurance. This assurance of salvation, this assurance that Jesus is mine. That is a wonderful gift to have, to know. But that's not going to stop Satan from trying to charge you and say, are you, really, are you really his? Look what you've done. With all the things that you've done, you think God could really forgive that? I mean, you, you confessed yourself to be his. You got baptized and told all these people you were his. 
and then you still sin. Do you think someone who's really his would do something like that? And that's Satan. And then the world comes along and says, oh, Christians, you believe these things. You're so hateful. You're following the, the word of God. Those things are so foolish. And they come and make these accusations. And then maybe worst of all, we ourselves, right? We come along and we say, it's, I'm not his. I'm, I'm just fooling people and I'm fooling myself. Doubts come in and do I really believe? And is this really true? Is this is really real? And we tend to take those burdens and we put them right back on our back. So how then, living in that kind of a world and that kind of reality, does these things mean for us practically? So four points of application. <clears throat> Number one, it absolutely, without question, means that your salvation does not depend on your religious performance, you praying a prayer, your baptism, you're answering an altar call, you're taking communion or anything like that. It depends solely on Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. All the pressure's on him, isn't it? We just believe. It's on him. We have faith. We trust. So live freely in that. Talked a little bit about that in Sunday school. Live freely in the fact that Jesus paid it all. Live grateful lives in that. Grateful to God. Not as spoiled children who think God must give us this and must give us that and owes us this and owes us that. We talked last week about being owed and what we deserve. It's grace. We live by grace. So live freely, not as someone fighting for their freedom, but for someone who has already been set free. Live for Jesus now and not for yourselves and not for Satan and not for the world's opinion. Second, it means that when Satan tries to accuse you or to charge you, which he will and which he does and which he has done, either in disbelief or after you've sinned that you aren't really a Christian or a true Christian would never do that, that those charges will not stick because your faith still isn't on your religious performance, but it is still on Jesus Christ. It wasn't that my faith was in Jesus Christ and that got me right with God and then now everything else is on my religious performance. It's still in faith in Jesus Christ. Speak that truth to yourself when Satan charges and accuses you. Remind yourself of the biblical truth here in Romans 8.33. Remind yourself that Jesus paid it all, that sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Remind yourself of those things. Yes, there is a whole other aspect when we sin, and the Holy Spirit brings conviction, and it grows us, and it grows us near to Jesus, and it conforms us, and it brings us to the foot of the cross, and then it brings us to the empty tomb, and it reminds us of everything that he's done. That's the 
continual part of the Christian life. But don't let him make you think for one second that you have lost something that is unlosable. Third, it means when others accuse you or charge you that their charges will not stick either. The burden is gone. The world likes to charge Christians with being wrong, on the wrong side of history, unloving, bigoted, hateful because we live by the word of God. We are uncompromising with God's truth. This will earn you hate and scorn in this world. You don't have to be hateful and mean. Just the fact of living by the truth is going to bring that hate and that scorn. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The burden is gone. The burden is gone. When those accusations and those charges come and they hurt or they sting, and let's not act like they don't, right? No one likes to be, feel like from another human being that they're unloving or unkind or because of what they believe that makes them hateful in those accusations. They really do sting and hurt. Remember those words of Jesus. Remember where your hope lies. Remember how your burden is, in, is removed. It's not removed by conforming to the world and everything that they say is right and true and loving and good. It's by conforming to Jesus Christ, by faith in him. Lastly, and I mentioned this, and maybe most importantly, because if you're like me, this is where most of the charges come from. It means when you accuse yourself or charge yourself, when your own conscience and spirit shows you that you're once again not living up to the calling that you've been called to, that when you see your sins clearly and you are down on yourself again, to look up to the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't look to yourself and how you must improve and get better and do better, but look up to Jesus. Counsel your own heart with the hope of the gospel, that you're the chief of the who's, who cannot bring any charge against God's elect. When he says who cannot bring any charge, that means you. You're included in that. That's not just others. 
Don't drive your own heart to despair, but let it bring you to the joy and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you. Your burden has been removed. Your burden is gone. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Peace, right? Not saving you and then turmoil. Saving you and I'm leaving you with peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Your burden is gone. You've been set free. You may be accused, but you are unchargeable. Remember it, rejoice in it, praise God for it. Let's pray. Lord, this is a gift beyond what, what we can fully process and understand. You take sinners like us, who while, you were while we were still your enemies, you died for us. You gave us a new heart. You opened our eyes to see. You give us the gift of faith and repentance. All by grace, nothing by what we deserve. You called us to be yours, shown us that our names are written in the book of life. And now we get this great promise that not only that, that it's never going to be taken away. We're unchargeable. There, no one can bring a charge against us because we are yours and there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Help us to find our assurance, our joy, our strength in these things. Remind us of these when our doubts come, when Satan tries to bring these, th these charges into our lives. Remind us of this great promise and this great verse. We pray in your name. Amen.